Welcome to Untold Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Osama Gawish. The government of Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi may be the most under threat in Africa from rising inflation. A report pu- published by Renaissance Capital, a London-based investment bank, says... This week, the Africa report raised an alarm stating that rising costs are increasing the risk of regime change in several African countries as higher prices make falls in peerhead GDP more likely. The report explained that in most emerging markets in 2022, falling GDP peerhead has little impact on political risk because most markets are wealthy and stable enough to withstand it. However, that doesn't apply in many parts of Africa, like Egypt. To know more about this important report and its findings, let me welcome the man behind the Regime Change Risk in Africa report, Charles Robertson. Charlie is a global chief economist, head of macro strategy Renaissance Capital. He's an emerging market specialist covering global economic themes, including democratization and demographics, education to ASG, fertility, as well as shorter term indication like his exchange rates and growth. He is the lead author of The Fastest Pillion, the story behind Africa's economic revolution. Charlie was voted the number one frontier analyst in the either or both of the two Excel surveys from 2016 to 20. He was the number one economist and macro analyst for emerging Europe, the Middle East, and Africa in the Excel survey from 2007 to 10. In 2021, Charlie was the first non-African to receive the African Icon Award from African Banker as his work has helped change perceptions about Africa and position the continent at a serious investment destination. Much of this will be written up the time-traveling economist to be published in 2022. Charlie, welcome to the show and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I I was a little surprised at how controversial uh, the report proved to be um, on on Egyptian uh, Twitter, uh, social media. So I, I welcome the opportunity to talk about um, why that might be. Um, so thank you very much for having me on. You're welcome. And we will talk about this shortly about the Egyptian trolls on Twitter, because I don't think this is a, a genuine uh, accounts who attacked you on, t- on Twitter last week. But we will talk about this shortly. But let me start with um, what were the reasons that encouraged you to work on this report? It's, it's something we've, I mean, I've taken a long uh, I've always been interested in the connection between politics and economics. Um, and we've written on this issue uh, a number of times. Um, at, at Renaissance Capital, the first time was during the Arab Spring. Um, I'd, I'd done some work a few years before on how rising wealth levels per capita GDP, as, as countries get richer, as people get richer, they begin to demand more political rights. Um, and, and the Arab Spring was very much uh, in, in that theme. You know, it was led off by Tunisia, which was one of the most, uh, one of the richest, uh, biggest middle class countries in, in Middle East, North Africa. Um, and and they, they sparked the Arab Spring. So we wrote a big piece then. We updated it again in 2016 uh, because there, there was that coup attempt in Turkey. And and what I was able to tweet on the evening that the coup was, was beginning, that Friday night, 
um, was that the coup was definitely going to fail. There was no chance the army was going to take power in, in Turkey because no, no democracy had ever been overthrown at Turkey's income level. The, the country was too rich for this. Um, now, I've written about it again. You know, each, each few, every few years that pass, we get more data to add into the model. Um, and I've written about it again because of this surge of inflation. Um, and, and people kept on asking, is, is this rise of inflation going to trigger political change? And what we discovered and sent out in early April was that uh, food price, well, inflation can indeed trigger change. Um, and we've already seen protests from Peru to Pakistan, um, Sri Lanka as well. Um, with, with inflation being a part of the problem that people are complaining about. So, so we updated the numbers and put out, put out this new report. Yeah, and, and just um, before we continue about the main findings of your report, Egyptians and the Egyptian state now, they are very sensitive when you mention or compare between the Turkish economy and Egyptian yes. one because they consider Turkey as their rivals in the Middle East. Yeah, indeed. Um, but, you know, in this particular report, we're, we're looking at 160 countries and everybody gets compared. Um, yeah. What's uh, what's why? Why do I talk and focus on Turkey as well? Because they they're both in, in the emerging market universe. So I talk to a lot of equity investors, people buying shares in about 20 emerging markets defined by MSCI, this uh, American company, which which says this country is an emerging market. Egypt's one, Turkey's another. So, you know, my clients are always comparing countries and, uh, and I, I do that for them as well. Brilliant. And what were the main findings of your report? Well, the, so what we do is we, we look at an income level uh, for, for every country since about 1960. Um, and we look at whether or not the political system changed in that year. Um, and what you find is that as countries get rich, their political systems stabilize, usually as a democracy. Um, the, the, the main exception are the oil exporters. If you export more oil than, you know, huge amounts mm. of oil, then actually you've got so much money that people don't demand a, a vote to the same extent, they don't demand a vote to decide how that money gets spent because they're not getting taxed. The oil uh, is, is the money, which is, which is kind of free. Um, and, but in other countries where there's not oil, um, so mostly excluding the Gulf countries, then as, as countries get richer, taxes tend to go up hmm. and people really do want a say in, in how those taxes are spent. So very low income countries, not such an issue. But as you get richer and richer, it begins to be an issue. So inflation is not going to change the story too much in America. We're not going to see the end of democracy in America or the UK or Germany or something, Japan. But in countries uh, that are kind of middle income, like Egypt, yeah. um, then, then the risks grow. Now, they're not, they're not that high, in fact. Um, what we find is that if, if you look at Egypt's income level and you look at its political system, and we, we don't make that judgment call, we use something called Polity 5, which is an academic database. You go back 200 years and it gives you a political score for every country 
for 200 years. Um, and that score says that at Egypt's income level, with, with Egypt's political system, there's been about 135 cases uh, of, of countries with the same system, the same income level. Um, and 84% of the time, the regime stays exactly the same mm. on a 12-month view. So over one year, nothing changes, 84% of the time. But if incomes fall, if incomes fall, that, that number drops down to 75%. So still, most likely, the, the regime stays the same. Okay. But Just the to explain this point, stop. Charlie, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, you mentioned in your report when the falling GDP per head has little impact on the political risk. Is this related to uh, the, the policy score that you just mentioned now? Yeah. The, 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 so what, when, when incomes are falling, people are more unhappy with the system. Um, so when inflation goes up a lot, that's a very similar story. Uh, incomes then are tending to fall because inflation and prices are going up. So they become less, uh, less happy with the system and more likely to, to force, well, there's more likely to be a change in the system, uh, in the political score, in that mm. score. So the score goes from like minus 10 if you're, you know, Saudi Arabia to kind of plus 10 if you're, I think Germany is at the moment plus 10 on this score. So that's particularly democratic. And, and we're looking for just a country to move a little bit, maybe from minus three to minus two or from plus four to plus five. But it tends to be what 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 it's what the data is telling us is that in Egypt's case, yeah, um, it's more likely to be towards democracy. That if the change happen, will be towards if, democracy. Yeah, if the change happens, it's possible that it moves away from democracy. That there's not even you know what would that mean? It would mean not even a parliament probably, but but uh, but more likely that there'll be some shift towards democracy. Uh, hmm. And why, why Egypt specifically, uh, Charlie, as at higher risk of the regime change? Because the, this, this phrase, the regime change in Egypt, had, had a bad experience in the last decade after the, the Arab Spring. And this current regime, they, they want any change in the political situation in, in Egypt. So again, according to your findings, why Egypt is at higher risk of the regime change? I think in the in the lower income countries, it is also a high risk. Um, it wasn't just Egypt that um, that came out as as, as, as significant. Um, let me just let me just try and find the the other countries: Bangladesh, Jordan, Morocco, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. All countries where there's a, a one in four chance. Of, of some change in this score, the, this, the, the political regime, if, if incomes fall. So it wasn't, just, it wasn't just focused on Egypt. It was interesting that, that social media paid so much attention to the Egypt part of it, but it's actually quite a number of countries um, we could see political, political change. Yeah, an Egyptian government forcing local wheat producers to sell a portion of their harvest to the government. And, you know, for the first time, the state intervened to dedicate the price of bread produced by private bakeries for the ten of millions of Egyptians, not registered in the so-called national food rationing system. So uh, how do you see the government approach and intervention? Well, that's the sort of thing 
Um, I mean, you can use this data in, in a number of ways, but that's, this is one of the ways you could use the data. If you're the government, you could say, OK, we have a problem here, potentially, um, if, assuming they don't want to see a change in the regime. Uh, we have a problem. So how do we address this? Let's uh, at least maintain the subsidies on, on food, perhaps broaden the subsidies if we can afford it, um, perhaps borrow money to be able to broaden the subsidies to keep people, uh, to ensure that their incomes are not, are not declining because this is going to be one of those vulnerable years. Mm. So it's worth spending now, if you're the government trying to stay in power, it's worth spending now in order to, to stabilise, to keep the situation stable. Does the Egyptian government now um, doing well regarding these economic problems? This, from an economic point of view, the yeah. government's done a, uh, I think, done a very good job in recent years. Um, I think Egypt had quite a lot of reforms that were needed, um, and in the beginning of the 2010s, that wasn't happening. Um, what you've seen is, is a currency which is more uh, flexible now, makes more sense uh, for investors. Um, you've had foreign investors putting money into Egypt, mostly the debt market, but, but also into offshore gas as well. Um, and I've been arguing for about five years now that, that the situation is good enough that uh, people are, are well enough educated and the, the, the wages in dollars globally are, are pretty cheap in, in Egypt. And this is the right time for people to be putting factories into Egypt yeah. and creating jobs. Um, and I you think know, the government has helped create that situation. Yeah, I, I left Egypt in 2013. I was a former dentist in Egypt. I was working in the um, uh, government hospital and my salary was equal to, I think in 2013 was monthly $70. Wow. Something like this. Wow. So what do you think about the salaries of, of the government sector in Egypt? No, they are. Where, where Egypt is at is um, it's had this, this big demographic uh, growth in, in young people. It's a young country. And when these people all enter the labor market at the same time, um, they, they, it, it keeps wages low. Because if you won't accept that job as a dentist, somebody else will and will come and do it for the same price or maybe a dollar less. Um, so what, what tends to happen, and it's what China went through about 20 years ago, um, is that you've got to get that, that investment in. You've got to, you've got to look uh, attractive enough to, the, to often foreign investors to come in, build factories, start exporting goods. And at that point, everyone's got a job, income start to go up, and then wages finally go up too. Now, it, there's a good 10-year gap between that foreign money coming in, building factories, building jobs, and that turning into much higher wages. It's, it's why Vietnam is still a pretty, pretty low-wage country now, um, even after 20 years of success. But it's just beginning in Vietnam. Wages are really beginning to pick up, and, and China is definitely much, much better off now than it was 25 years ago. So Egypt's got still hard work to do for the next 10, 15 years. And um, many people, and um, I, I have interviewed many economic experts, Egyptian, and in Arabic, and, and they argue, surely, that, that 
the current regime are spending billions on mega projects without providing or introducing new jobs for youth or for Egyptian people. And then in the meantime, they are um, just increasing the, the, the external debts for billions now. And this didn't um, reflect on the economy. This didn't reflect on the Egyptian people. How do you think this? I, I understand the criticism. Um, my, my sense is that the, the mega projects are partly about trying to boost confidence, trying to show that something is changing, um, partly about creating some jobs uh, in, in the construction sector. Um, but the real game changer from what I've seen um, in, in Asia, for example, in Vietnam, in China, Korea, Singapore, all of the big success stories, the big game changer has been when the export industry has been built up in a really big way. But it's not always up to the government to be able to make that happen. Mm. You know, Vietnam asked and encouraged companies like Samsung from Korea to come and, and make Samsung phones. I think half the phones, Samsung phones in the world are now made in Korea. And the, Samsung agreed. Korea was, was up for that. Samsung was up for that. They did it. But getting that first big company in is really hard work. But if you get it, you attract in all the rest as well. So America's Intel goes and makes microprocessor chips there now. Honda is making loads of vehicles in, in Vietnam now. Once one big company comes in and makes a success of it, it, it works really well. And you're seeing it in Morocco. You're seeing it in Morocco with when, when Renault went in there in 2005-06, that people thought, what are they doing? Is, it going to be, is this going to work? Why don't they just set up a factory in Hungary or Poland or Czech Republic like all the other European car manufacturers were doing? But Renault was a little bit of pressure from the French president. Winston sets up a factory in, in, in Morocco, and it does really well. And now you've got Peugeot there. Um, you've got Airbus uh, making uh, electrical wiring in Morocco. Morocco's now doing really well. But getting that first big project, whether it's Samsung in Vietnam or Renault in Morocco, that's what I think the government needs to be trying to prioritize. That should yeah. be the, the number one focus. Okay, I will come back to the government approach regarding the Egyptian economy. But back to your report, the Africa report. After publishing this report, you tweeted this and I quote, Democracy is awful. It leads to instability and is promoted by lunatics who want to destroy <laughs> countries. These weren't the reaction I expected when the Africa report wrote about our recent piece on political change and inflation. They are illuminating about Egypt. Charlie, why did you write this? What happened? Uh, well, I, I, was, I was shocked. Not, not completely shocked. Um, I've, you know, I've written about politics and economics before, and but it's an interesting difference between the two. When I write, when I make a forecast and say such and such a country is is going to go into recession, people don't think I I want the recession. Um, you know, when I say inflation is going to go up, people don't think I I want inflation to go up. But when I wrote that this, the data tells us that the political risks in, in, in Egypt are high and we might see political change. Uh, the reaction of certainly some people on Twitter was that I must want uh, regime change. Yeah. And not only must I want it, but I must 
uh, be be promoting it, that I must be uh, wanting uh, a chaos to return um, as, as they saw it, the chaos of, of 2011 to 13. And, and I must want the Islamists, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, back in power, as they suggested. And, and I must, uh, must be in the pay of these people. Yeah, they, these, they paid you. You are a big traitor and spy. You are the enemy of the state. It was something like that. And it was a, a I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise. So that's what I was trying to get at in the tweet you just mentioned. Uh, and they, they um, replied you with this uh, comments with this tweet? Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I did a little thread uh, after that, that tweet of, of just some of the replies. And it was, uh, but sometimes, you know, even, even a lot of criticism like that can be, can be illuminating. I mean, it can, it can help to show the strength of feeling. Um, so I have been told a number of times on my visits to Cairo that, that people really do prioritize stability and and this is seen as as very important um and that 2011 to 13 was seen as a very destabilizing period and I, you know, i've seen similar feelings elsewhere so after in the 1990s in russia they had a very they had democracy they had a market economy and it all came at once it was very destabilizing um and when putin took power in 2000 and and began to strengthen the state um, and bring back stability. People said they much preferred this to the chaos of democracy in the 1990s. And I think it helps explain why Putin's been there now for 22 years. Um, that, that, and did, that, that, yeah, yeah, and did you expect these reactions from Egyptians? Not really, because the report had been, you know, I said the report out in early April, um, it had gone to the media. No one particularly noticed it or wrote about it until the Africa report itself. This journalist um, decided to, to focus on it with, with, with an Egyptian headline because he thought, probably rightly, as it turns out, that, that this would be very interesting, <laughs> which it was. And that, and to be fair, Egypt's one of the most important economies in all of Africa, um, one of the most important in the Middle East. So, it's a big deal. Um, so it's when he focused, the, the, he just pointed out my conclusions yeah. on, on I'll, Egypt. I'll, I will tell you the other side of the story because I, I was following up your report from the day one you published it. I retweeted and the plenty of um, TV anchors in the Middle East, Egyptians and others, uh, retweeted in English and just translated in Arabic. And then a prominent Arabic media outlets, it's published the, the report in Arabic and mention your name, and mention your tweet, and the Africa Report tweet. Ah. And then, yeah, and then some of the Egyptian media close to the regime, they start to accusing the Africa Report that it's uh, funded by Muslim Brotherhood, and you are an agent for, for the enemy mm -hmm. of the state. And then, yeah, they start attacking you on Twitter. This is the other side of the story in Arabic. Interesting. I uh, I wasn't aware of all that. Yeah, I wasn't aware. Thank you. And and when this happened, Charlie, when you are an expert of the economy, and when you write about a country like Egypt, and you find this massive attack and threats and accusations, you consider this as um, 
an official response to what you are writing, or this is just a trolls on Twitter? I, occasionally, what I write does cause a little trouble with the authorities in various countries. Um, sometimes it's central banks, and uh, I've been uh, accused of speculating against currencies when I've suggested that there is a you know, risk of a devaluation. Um, so I've, I've had that a few times. Um, but I haven't seen such a... I, well, I, and actually, thinking about Nigeria on elections, on politics, I remember writing about, about the Nigerian elections in 2015, and, and I could tell from the first results coming out that, that Buhari was, was going to win. But the official results didn't come out for two days, but they released them bit by bit, state by state. And, and I, I you know, concluded... Okay, Bahari's won. You know the numbers are looking so good for him. He's he's going to have won, and people honestly believed I'm, I must be in the pay of Bahari um, to be saying such a thing. Um, and and it was again an interesting experience that when it comes to politics, people are very sensitive. Hmm. I guess it, it is, yeah, and especially in the Middle East, especially in a country like Egypt, you know the. There is a, a, a broad discussion in the recent weeks about the decline situation of economy in, in Egypt, the government decision. The government claimed that they are doing reforms about the, the, the economy. They took some money from the Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, like Qatar, mm. like United Arab Emirates, and they are trying to pursuing the IMF to have another loan from it. However, it's, it's, it's still in, in, in the process. We, we don't know what the, the, the decision of the IMF. So it, it, the situation is sensitive in Egypt regarding the economy in the recent uh, weeks. And now with your topic, the regime change risk, I think it's too sensitive for the Egyptian regime. Yes, um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a tough time. That's the difficulty. Um, you know, when you get when you get an economic slowdown like we're having in the world, and the threat of rising inflation or slowing tourism receipts or or whatever the problem might be, it, it's it does create more and more challenges. And and every government wants to be able to promote a success, but there's not that many successes to to talk about um, in in a global economy, which feels like it is, does right now. Um, so this. This does make it challenging. And I think for, for issues like going to the IMF, it's also difficult because the IMF is, in general, trying to get governments to make sure their spending is in line with their revenues. Uh, they don't borrow too much. So they tend to be seen as the bad guy. Hmm. But for economists and, and investors, somebody needs to be the bad guy and, and to make sure that governments don't borrow too much that they do keep things under on on track and and sustainable and and so many of the success stories of the last 50 years have gone to the imf well, the uk used to i think we went to the imf in the 1970s yeah i think we went to the imf quite a lot actually before the 1970s but um, mentioning Mauritius, borrowing charlie i'm sorry mentioning yes, borrowing no. egypt's total yes. sovereign loans are expected to reach record level by the end of this year according to data issued by the International Credit Rating Agency, Standard & Poor's. Do you think this economic approach of external borrowing could be the solution of the Egyptian regime? It's not a solution because the debt levels are, are too high. 
Um, there are countries that can borrow to, to grow, um, ones with very low levels of debt, but Egypt's not one of them right now. Egypt's got one of the highest uh, levels of debt. Actually, it's got the second highest level of debt in the emerging markets uh, after Greece. Um, quite a long way after Greece, luckily, but still, the debt level is high. So it's a difficult, it is a difficult situation. The best solution for Egypt is to get high growth that lets you grow out of your debt. Um, but again, this isn't the right year to get that high growth. And the, the, the government keeps saying that every country has um, external debts and keep borrowing. And this is from for, for the growth of the, uh, the, the economic. However, the total debt in Egypt becomes the double in the last five years only, Charlie. So the question is now, why these billions couldn't help the economy? I, I have, because I, I've been promoting what I, I think Egypt is, is poised and ready to, to industrialize and create all these jobs, what struck me is that these companies haven't come. We haven't seen the Samsung or Renault come and put their factories into, into Egypt. And, and the question I've been trying to answer is why. And it came up with me back in 2004-05, Ukraine. Ukraine had this fantastic orange revolution. Everyone was very excited by it. And I, I remember going to talk to a lot of big Western companies and saying, are you going to set up a factory in, in Ukraine now after the orange revolution? And they said, eh, we need at least two to three years hmm. of, of real stability before we'll do that. Now, it turns out they were right, because three years later, 2008, we had the global financial crisis and Ukraine had collapsed. So they were right to be cautious. Now, if you go back to, say, 2016, 2017 in Egypt, we saw that big devaluation that had to happen. But it meant that inflation went to over 30, 35 percent in 2017. So that that was unstable. 2018, there was a big crisis in Turkey. Everyone was taking money out of uh, yeah. countries in the region, including Egypt. So 2018 was also a, a difficult year. 2019, we had one year of stability. And then 2020, we get COVID. And 2021, we get Omicron and all of the other COVID kind of variants. And so we've only had... And now the war in Ukraine. Not, yeah, not enough stability anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, I think what the government's been doing is saying, OK, um, we're not getting this foreign direct investment in. The factories aren't arriving yet. Let's keep growth going through some borrowing. Um, so they haven't cut the debt as much as I'd have liked. They haven't been able to cut the budget deficit as much as I'd have liked. But, but they're keeping growth coming in. And it's going in at, what, 5 6% most years? That's pretty good. But we want to see kind of six, seven, eight percent growth a year. And to get that, I suspect we still need two years of stability before these foreign companies come in and start creating the jobs. And do you think they can survive with the Egyptian economy by such a politics? Our well, economic policies? Yes. Yes. Um, it's not without risk because the debt level's high. The budget deficit's high. So there is risk. But, uh, but we are still suggesting that investors remain invested in Egypt um, on the debt side and continue to support the government's uh, borrowing needs. Um, 
and I think you know if 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 we start to see say China worry that America might you know have worse relations with China and factories decide to leave China perhaps for a safer place which isn't so geopolitically problematic with America might they decide that China that Egypt is the right place to move some of those factories I think they might and if that yeah, happens and- in the next year then it's a good story Yeah, there is a many rumors in the recent weeks compare the situation in Lebanon with Egypt, and they are read, um, they are raising an alarm and warning that Egypt may face economic collapse like Lebanon. Do you agree with that? No, I, I, no, I, I mean, it's you know, give it ten years, anything's possible. But, but on, a, I remember giving up on Lebanon in about 2012 or 2013 when I, I couldn't. Make sense of of the balance of payments data then, um, and so to me it was just a matter of time until Lebanon went wrong. I think I think the country more more likely or more problematic at the moment would be say Jordan or or Tunisia. They they also have high debt. They haven't got good growth. Um, there's also the risk of political change in Jordan actually as well. Um, so that's another you know it's another country. That's vulnerable when when inflation's going up. So I think those countries are have more risk attached to them of, of heading in a Lebanese way than Egypt does over the next couple of years. Yeah. Okay, and and there is an, an um, a policy by the president of Egypt right now. When he talk about economic problems, he talk about to the Egyptian people and says, now we have a problem. We spent the foreign reserve. We have a problem regarding the infrastructures and uh, plenty of projects and mega projects inside Egypt. So the people should join the the government in taking responsibility. Do you think this is a a proper approach uh, with a a nation like Egypt have more than 100 million people? I... I don't think I can answer that one because I think that that feels to me like a a kind of a, a cultural question, a question of can you rally the population behind your vision? And as an outsider, I I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but but he's like... yeah he's explained his vision like. He, he... We, we need to raise taxes. You, 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 we need to raise price of transport and bread yeah. and any, any, anything else because it's your responsibility as it is my responsibility as a president to just save our country. Well, as the economist to me says, he's painful though it is to, to be on the ground when your wages are low. And we've both mentioned that. Um, Bread, transport prices, all of these things, paying taxes, they are actually essential. The, the, the budget deficits are too big. The government does have to do something. Neither it has to cut spending a lot, but I think people would be shocked by that too. Or, or taxes have to go up and the price of, of these products has to, has to be more realistic levels. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it's tough. It's hard. You know, not... Not everybody is as lucky to live in a in a kind of Dubai or, or Qatar Q8 where there's so much oil money. You don't have to, yeah. You don't have to pay the proper price for things, and you, and you get a very low tax rate. 
you know, for, for the rest of us who live in normal countries, life's, life's a little bit tougher. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's tough and hard, as you, as you said. And my final question, Charlie, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the Egyptian economy in the recent years? I am, I am optimistic um, because, because I think the fundamentals are there. I've, I'm publishing a book uh, in about six weeks called um, The Time Traveling Economist. And it's trying to explain what countries need to get right before they can take off, before they can be like China or Korea. And, and I focus on education and I focus on uh, electricity and I focus on fertility. When, when people have really, really big families, there's no savings left in the banking system to fund investment. Uh, and when you have smaller families, savings go up, interest rates go down, and, and then you can afford big investment projects and you don't need to get foreign debt to do it. And Egypt is, is there on education, but only since 2010. You know, only, only then did yeah. the education numbers get good enough. Electricity, you're there too. Uh, fertility rate's still a little high. And, uh, but I think that's coming down in the next five years. Well, the United Nations says it's going to drop below about three children per woman. And at that, at that point, Egypt then can take off. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm optimistic. Thank you very much, Charlie, for joining me today. <laughs> that's a pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. It's been very interesting. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Bye. Take care. Bye.